Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing all right. Doing pretty good. It's been a nice day today. Kind of, you know, uh, we're getting we're getting into February, so any day you get that's above like you know 25, you feel like is a win, you know. And uh, it's been yeah, you know, this, the the legislature's back in session, so I guess that's a little depressing. Uh, but we aren't talking much about that today. Uh, no guests today either. Uh, the legislature just started back, and I think there's only just been a few meetings and a lot of bills filed. So we'll have plenty to talk about with the session next week. But this week, we're going to be talking about some different stuff. There, there was a bit of a controversy regarding Andy Bashir and tornado relief uh, for the for the Western Kentucky tornadoes that happened at the end of 2021. So we'll be talking about a couple of pieces in different magazines, news newspapers, etc. What, Jasmine, how do you con- what do you consider the Kentucky Lantern? Just a website? Like what is it? What do you call it? A news outlet a news a couple of news outlets have some stories about the tornado release we're gonna be talking about those uh and then jasmine has a quick hit roundup plenty of stuff to talk about from across the state uh kelly craft making a bit of a gaffe potentially uh you know, uh, more updates on the Juvenile Justice Center, especially as it relates to, uh, especially as it relates to the legislature. Some stuff in Louisville with the state of the city uh, and Lexington, which also had a state of the city, uh, and, and then some appointments to Louisville's Metro Council. So we'll get into that towards the end. But I'll let me go ahead and start talking about this thing regarding uh, tornado relief. So. Yeah, a couple of stories, one in the Herald Leader and one in the Kentucky Lantern about the 2021 tornadoes in Western Kentucky uh, and, and the relief efforts that stemmed from them. So first up, Tessa Duval of the Herald Leader wrote a story about checks that went out to Kentuckians who were not affected by the tornadoes. Her story said that there were 184 checks canceled all uh, or most. It wasn't really clear if they were all $1,000, but it seemed like that that was the modal amount was $1,000. So the Public Protection Cabinet, who administers this, this relief program, said that it relied on FEMA and insurance companies to validate who got paid. So, like, they, they did not do any any validation as to or, like, need uh, verification through the state. They depended on the federal government and insurance companies to do the verification. And at his weekly press conference, Andy Bashir said, quote, but by using their verification systems, we didn't have to pay millions of dollars to independently verify each and every person. And what that means is even if there's 100 checks that we have to pull back, it means that millions of extra dollars ended up in people's pockets, unquote. So saying, you know, yes, there were some mistakes made in the aid verification process. They weren't our mistakes. We didn't take on this task ourselves because it would have cost a lot of money. Somebody else was already doing it. Um, so, you know, that, that was his excuse. Afterwards, Tessa Duval tweeted out a response from FEMA, which said, in part, quote, FEMA only provided the Commonwealth information regarding applicants eligible to receive FEMA assistance. FEMA thoroughly vetted all applicants for program eligibility. Any applications flagged for potential fraud were not included in information shared with the Commonwealth, unquote. So Jasmine, Tessa Duval said that, quote, her, she said later, her quote was, this statement seems to indicate that FEMA disagrees with the Bashir administration pointing the finger at them for erroneous checks, unquote. So, so Jasmine, do you see it that way? Um, looking at that quote from FEMA, do you think that that's them pushing back against Andy Bashir to do that? Do you think that that's them saying, no, this was not our fault? Or, or how do you read that statement? Um, I, I sort of read it that way, but I don't know. I guess I also read it as just like factual information that they were providing. Yeah. But 
I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I understand that they, like, released a statement after Andy Bashir said something, but the FEMA statement at no point is like, no, Andy Bashir is wrong. They're saying, we provided the Commonwealth information regarding applicants eligible to receive FEMA assistance. Like, okay, here's the people who are eligible. And it turned out that some of them shouldn't have been eligible. I mean, this is, you know, these people in the in the story, 184 checks were canceled because, you know, whatever, these people were in... Kenton County, or they were scattered to the winds. Like, they were all over the place. They weren't where they were supposed to be. Uh, but FEMA, at no point, is saying, no, Andy Bashir, you're wrong. Uh, we validated everybody, and we're 100% right. Uh, I don't... <laughs> I don't. Maybe the timing is what, what Tessa Duval is talking about here, and that Andy Bashir said something, and then finally FEMA got back to her. Um, I don't know. Uh, to me, it's easy to see how maybe FEMA did miss some of the potential fraud or also had issues administering their own verification program. And honestly, 184 people out of the millions of dollars that went out, that's a pretty good, you know, fraud exists. Like people say that they want to get checks or and also people just kind of slip through the cracks where you're like, well, this pe- person seemed like they could have been affected or, you know, fraudsters put other people's name in there trying to get them. I, You know, there's there's all kinds of things that could have happened. Um, you know, and, and it's FEMA also hasn't exactly, uh, you know, they've, they've come under fire in Eastern Kentucky for their administration of the program in Eastern Kentucky. So I don't, they're not exactly a, a bright shining star in, in the midst of the Kentucky disaster relief here, uh, as far as we can tell. So, you know, I don't know that didn't seem like very hard pushback from FEMA, if that's in fact what they meant to do, uh, with that statement that they provided to Tessa Duval after the fact, after this article came out. So, uh, you know, of course, since Andy Bashir is uh, caught up in this imbroglio uh, in this story, the, the RPK, the Republican Party of Kentucky, uh, you know, they, they made a statement. They, they called the program a slush fund. And, and Andy Bashir, of course, uh, you know, came right back and said, you mean the opposite party during an election year would use words like that? Well, I guess the Republican Party of Kentucky believes helping farmers who lost their granary is wrong. I guess the Republican Party of Kentucky believes that rebuilding 300 homes is wrong. I guess the Republican Party no longer believes in private donations as a way to support our families. Listen, this money has done a huge amount of work, and we ought to, in a bipartisan way, say thank you to the donors. Unquote. So, I don't know, Jasmine, what do you think? From this story, before we get into the Kentucky Leonard story, which is a lot more complicated than this one, um, this story, do you feel like this one has a chance to catch fire in the 2023 elections? Do you feel like that this is something that could potentially cause problems for the governor as we move forward? Um, I think it could just because because it, it has to do with relief money and even though it's a small amount of people, the sum of, of money sounds kind of bad, I think. And so it just comes across like a pretty big flub, I think. And like mismanagement. To me, it doesn't come across like corruption. It's just like, how can we trust this person to handle and manage our state? Um, so I, I do think it's going to come up. How much of an issue for voters it becomes, I'm not really sure, but I think it'll be used by Republicans. Yeah, I don't have any doubt about that. I definitely think it's something that's going to get brought up by Republicans quite a bit as we move forward. Uh, I, I don't know. To me, though, the the actual like merits of the thing, I, I don't think it's worth it. Although I think you're exactly right that it definitely will. And people will try to make an issue of this. Yeah. Um, you know, it was less than two hundred thousand dollars out of a program that was fifty two million dollars. It's a pretty small piece of the program. Uh, it looks like it got caught. Right. The checks got canceled. And I, I mean, there, of course, is a, th- that out there like, well, 
those are the ones you caught, but how many went out that didn't get caught, right? Of course, and that's impossible to prove a, a hypothetical. Like, you know, we, as soon as we found out, we did additional verification. We decided these 184 were not legit and canceled them. Um, and, and then also, like, I think that the reason, the, the excuse given is valid. Like, we didn't want to duplicate work that FEMA was already doing to verify aid. So we just used what they gave us and it turned out that 184 of these people were just like wrongly attributed by fema as being you know uh needing aid and and so i i don't know i find that compelling but it might just be because i'm already inclined to support andy Bashir. uh the other thing is it's private donations if it was tax dollars i think that that would be different too like you know mismanagement of tax dollars this is people who give money to the state to to administer a program above and beyond their tax money and and you know I, I, you know, a lot of people I knew gave to the fund, like I, you know, I gave like 50 bucks or whatever. And I think a lot of people might have given a little bit, but you know, most people didn't, <laughs> most voters didn't give to the fund. So it wasn't really their money that got caught up. But I think you're exactly right, Jasmine, people are going to con- try to use this. And who knows if it's going to be effective or not. I, I, I think maybe if if the Republican running in this race can like prove a pattern of mismanagement. Um, and, and, you know, they'll definitely try, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I, I, I think that Andy Bashir is is okay with this, even though obviously it would be better not to have anything like this um, following him around. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. the The pattern of mismanagement thing is something that I I think Republicans may try to use, combining things like this along with maybe um, like the unemployment system during COVID and the, the juvenile justice system crisis that's kind of going on right now. And, you know, people that, um, you know, don't believe in COVID altogether and, um, are just hardcore conservatives are, are never going to vote for Andy Bashir. Um, but a more moderate person, um, Maybe some things like this, if you put them all together, uh, that might sway them one way or the other. And so um, that's something that maybe a moderate voter is going to pay attention to if they're putting all these pieces together. Yeah, I I think that that's totally fair. I I think that 100 percent of incumbents have attacks like this made against them. Like no matter how well you administer the government. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, This person is a terrible manager of your tax dollars. They're wasting things like it's just it's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible to administer a program of like uh, right. Of, like no bureaucratic system is is ever going to run perfectly ever in the history of the world. But of <laughs> course, like you find the flaws, and if you're trying to oust this person from their office, if you're a Democrat and it's a Republican, you know, office holder, you find the flaws and you point them out. And if you're a Democrat or if you're a Republican and there's a Democratic office holder, you, the the opposite is true too. You know, it is. I I think at the end of the day. Stuff like this helps people clarify their 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 already preferences. Like I don't know. I don't think I, yeah. I think I think that like if you don't like Andy Bashir because you just vaguely don't like Democrats or you you know, you're a pretty moderate person, but Joe Biden's been rubbing you the wrong way recently, or like you've seen Alexandria Ocasio Cortez one too many times on like MSNBC or whatever, and you're like her 
her personality grates on me or whatever. And then this all this management stuff about Andy Bashir comes out and you realize that he's the Democrat. That might push you to the other side. But, you know, I, I think that these kind of things tend to tend to clarify. And, and your stated reason will because, well, you know, he mismanaged that tornado money. But it's really like a bunch of things on top of it, mm-hmm. on top of that. So who knows? Uh, but that, of course, is not the only story about the tornadoes that, that came out on the heels of this story by, by Tessa Duvall and the Herald Leader. Liam Niemeyer of the Kentucky Lantern had a second story about the tornado relief program, which ran later in the week. This one's a lot more complicated, so hold on. We're going to get through it. The story reported that only 10% of the $12 million provided to counties to provide for unmet needs had been spent. So this was a $12 million fund that was created in July of this year after counties had said there's a lot of unmet needs that are in our communities that we would like some money to deal with ourselves. So the state took some of that $52 million that we were already talking about, provided it to counties, and then put some rules around it and said, okay, here's how you can give this money out. Only 10% of that money has been spent. Niemeyer tells the stories of several people who needed things like roofs, vehicles, other large cost items, and the state capped the gifts that could be given to individuals at $3,500. And in fact, one of the section headings in Niemeyer's pieces is $3,500 enough for anything. Um, I think so. <laughs> you know, I don't know, uh, as a start, especially to, to purchase something or, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I understand that some people have some bigger needs uh, and, and maybe they didn't have insurance to cover some of those things. And that's really unfortunate. Um, but, you know, giving a huge gift to like one person, you know, giving twenty, thirty thousand dollars to replace a roof to one person when a lot of people lost their roofs. How do you determine who gets that? amount of I like that the increasing the gift amount starts to open some pretty significant um you know some it's pretty significant cans of worms um and, and so I I don't know there are several other items in this piece but I wanted to start with this one because it was the one that I th- I was kind of scratching my head at the most like yeah I think $3500 like there's a lot of people who could probably use $3500 um to 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 go towards a, a problem that they had uh resulting from those tornadoes uh, another issue besides the the size of the gift amount that Nehemiah raised is that uh, long-term recovery groups, so these are the county-level groups that are supposed to be tasked with spending this money, um, they're struggling with rules at different levels of government. So besides the $3,500 limit, if survivors are given state money, um, it puts FEMA money at risk. So the state required what they called a good faith effort to use other funding sources before receiving the Team Kentucky money. So somebody in the state government would get this application for you know $3,500 for somebody uh, in one of the counties in Western Kentucky. And they would say, well, did they get any FEMA money? Did they try to get any FEMA money? And they were like, well, no. And they were like, okay, well, we're not going to approve that one. They needed to go, go to FEMA first, get the FEMA, see, get the rejection from FEMA first, and then we'll give them this money. Um, that caused a lot of friction, a lot of problems. And uh, like Warren County, which was one of the counties that got this money, uh, they said, quote, rather than try to prove really an unknown, the recovery group opted not to use any of its $466,000. So they just were like, I know we've got this money, but we don't even want to mess with it. We don't even want to mess with this this thing. We're not even going to try to you know, prove this unknown of did is there any other funding out there that you could use. So, you know, uh, that I, I kind of get how that's frustrating. I think that's a little short-sighted to be like, well, we're not even going to try. This money's out there. We're not even going to work with it. Um, and, and also the the kerfuffle around that rule about trying to prove that the you know the FEMA money isn't available um, 
because it was raised enough, the state eventually got rid of it. And even before this piece was published, that uh, that guideline was removed. Uh, and I think that that goes to show that, like, you know, the, the governor and uh, his administration is trying to be flexible about spending this money, even though the rules at first probably were causing some frustration or definitely were causing some frustration with these county level officials. Okay, so the the third thing that Niemeyer brought up in his piece, which you should go back and read the whole thing, and this is the one I'm going to talk the least about, um, but, you know, there's a struggle to hire, retain, and assign caseworkers to the people applying for this money. Of course, dealing with bureaucracy, like we said, is, is already very difficult, and people who, you know, are dealing with significant property loss and also, like, loss of actual lives in their communities that's a lot to deal with and having a caseworker assigned to you that's going through the entire process with you is is a big help and in fact kind of necessary to to solve these problems and hiring retaining and assigning these people has has been a challenge for for this for these groups uh in western kentucky so that was kind of the crux of of this article is well written i think both of these articles were, were well written brought up a lot of good points uh were deeply reported got good quotes from from lots of different officials um but this second article in the end you know i don't know uh, the fund was set up to give local governments money to pay for needs in the community and you know there are a lot of layers of bureaucracy local leaders didn't seem up to the tasks to deal with the rules as they were created and also like having to deal with federalism having to deal with the federal government and the state government at the same time uh proved to be pretty difficult I, for me the thing that was the least convincing here was that 3500 hundred dollar limit um, you know, that's, that's a lot of money. Uh, and you know, I understand that people have needs, but like, like, you know, it's a start. If you need to replace a tractor, if you need to replace a roof, like $3,500 can get you well on your way to solving that problem, um, with, with other sources, federal money, whatever, like uh, other, other opportunities might out be out there to solve your problem. Um, but you know, uh, also my conclusion is like the government, the, the state government seems to be trying to work inside of this problem to solve the problem maybe they're not moving fast enough but you know just the the fact that some of these guidelines have been changed and you know they're working with counties to try to open this up uh is is maybe evidence that you know they're seeing the problem and trying to fix it i don't know jasmine so uh for this second story uh first of all did you follow it all and and second of all like what do you think about it as it uh as it's uh, unfolded yeah i've definitely like follow what's going on and at- I kind of think you're right about the cap on $3,500 for individuals. I, I think while it it certainly is a, a kind of small amount of, mon- of money considering the damage that people face, I just don't know what you do about how to disperse it considering how many individuals need it and how you would go about deciding who gets more, who gets zero other than putting some kind of individual cap. And it's a charity fund, you know? And so I think 30, I would, I would rather have the $3,500 than one person get 10,000 and I get zero. Um, and so I don't know. I think I kind of agree with you there. Um, but yeah, I, I think overall it it kind of seems like it's it's been a it's been a rough week for um, the state with these tornado stories. But I think disasters like this it they always highlight um, how difficult 
and unprepared governments are for things like this and yeah um it it, it sounds like some things need to change and that they're they're trying to handle the situation and and trying to be flexible um to make sure people get what they need yeah you know i i don't think that i've ever seen a natural disaster where you know, a year or two afterwards that like the administration of that disaster aid has been like glowingly covered. I I think maybe the only one I can think of is like Superstorm Sandy up in New York, which got pretty high marks, but also had some pretty significant problems. I think about like the the hurricane in Haiti, right, that the federal government and, and really the UN stepped in to like do a bunch of work after the really terrible hurricane that was there like 2009 um and, and i remember like in the aftermath of this I, everybody's like oh my gosh you know we're going to use the the, the the international community is going to use this disaster to like help build a better haiti or whatever and it turned out that like the u.n ended up giving like thousands of people cholera <laughs> and like people died all over like lots of people died and the united nations ended up paying like a ton of money just in like restitution to people because they literally killed people in the aid process so you know these these types of things are 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 impossible. Like, I don't know, it's, it seems almost impossible to, to emerge from unscathed. Um, and, and all you can really do if faced with a situation like this, where you have a natural disaster, is to, is to do your best and to try to adjust as, as frustrations ultimately um, rise up. And yeah, Andy Bashir got a lot of bad press this week. Uh, s- stories that didn't come out with him looking uh, too favorable, but I think that that's just part of the job of being the governor. Like, this is going to happen to you because administration is impossible at the level that we have we have to do it. Um, you can't come through that looking perfect. You just have to take the bad things that happen, adjust to them, work within them. And I think he's kind of doing that. And I think that, like, the evidence in these stories show that he's trying to be flexible. He's trying to work through um, a, a lot of this this stuff as it exists and, you know, trying to make good decisions throughout the, throughout the process. I think there's nothing in either of these things where I'm looking at the actions of the state government or the actions of the Bashir administration and I'm saying that's completely indefensible. Maybe it's not what I would have done and, and maybe it's not what it's not what some of these county level people were done. But I understand why the decisions got made. Um, and, and I also understand why some of the decisions were reversed. And I think that that just goes to show that, you know, there's a good faith effort being made. So, you know, who knows where these things are going to end up if it ends up that Andy Bashir gets in a lot of trouble and this costs some reelection. I don't know, but I hope not, because I do think, you know, given the set of circumstances, Andy Bashir came out better than most people would when administering a program like this. Anything else to say about tornadoes, Jasmine? No, I don't think so. And I, and I think you're right. And I think, you know, Bashir, he acted promptly when these disasters happened as well. And so, you know, I think we have to remember that too. You know, he, um, so yeah, I, I just think that he's, he's really tried to help both Western Kentucky and Eastern Kentucky. And and some of this is, is definitely on local governments as well. And it's just tough to, to bring back communities after disasters like these. Yeah. All right, Jasmine, enough about tornadoes. Let's talk about quick hits. Yeah. So we just have a couple short stories that we wanted to talk about this week. So the first one um, is another Kelly Craft story. So 
Kelly Craft has said that she wants to dismantle the Department of Education. So yesterday, Monday, a liberal PAC called American Bridge 21st Century tweeted a seven-second clip of Kelly Craft telling a crowd that one of the first things she wants to do as governor is dismantle the Department of Education. And this was apparently a, a quote from a speech that she gave at an event in Versailles. Um, also at this event was a small group of people who showed up to protest Kraft's empty chair ad. Yeah. And so that was another story that came out of that event as well. And so that little seven second clip was, was all that was tweeted out. But she did say um, after that seven seconds that she wanted to revamp the entire department. Then later on Monday, American Bridge 21st Century tweeted out a second slightly longer clip where she in fact said it again that we must dismantle the Department of Education and start over. Um, So, Robert, what did you think about that statement yeah um so whenever i hear like oh a seven second clip where somebody's saying something crazy uh my inclination no matter who it is is like okay that's out of context what's what's the actual yeah so yeah okay the original context i want to dismantle that board of education um full department that yes i want to dismantle the department of education the full context of this is that she does want to dismantle the department of education she wants to Mm -hmm. revamp it start it over um, and, and I think like a lot of conservatives pointed to the fact that like Andy Bashir dismantled the board of education and reformed the board. But what she's saying is the whole department to tear the whole department right. down and to rebuild the whole department, which is a much, those, much larger undertaking. Right. That's why I, I corrected you because those things are different. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, it is. That would be a huge deal and very scary uh, for, to see like somebody like Kelly Craft who's using the words like woke agenda or whatever to like uh, scare people and, and she would probably rebuild a department of education that would be in the mold of like Ron DeSantis in Florida that's banning books left and right and, and you know dismantling libraries and um, you know forcing you know kids who um, are trans to uh, be outed to their parents like uh, all this kind of like really scary stuff that we don't have in Kentucky because of the good leadership that we have in the governor's office, um, you know, would, would be, would be redone entirely. And, and the power of administrators and teachers and, and the people who are the closest to this issue would be replaced by politicians, the governor and the legislature. So that's very scary situation to see, even though this clip was only seven seconds, the full context might be even worse. Yeah, so Kelly Craft issued two statements after these clips came out. Uh, she the first one she said, "No one can hide that our current state board of education and department of education are a mess, pushing woke agendas in our schools. I'll dismantle our current board and start over. I'll empower parents, send more resources to the classroom, and end the woke nonsense being." pushed in our schools so in that statement she does say board and then there's a second statement from her campaign that says kelly said she'll dismantle the kentucky department of education and revamp the entire department and replace it along with the state school board with people who empower parents and make will make sure 
teachers teach the ABCs, not the CRTs. My goodness. Yeah, uh, you know... I I honestly (laughs) think she should have left it with the first one. She's running in a Republican primary. But she is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, She is. And I don't know. It is... It's really... I mean, I don't know. This is clearly part of the Republican agenda for 2023. Like, today was the first day that the legislature was back, and we're not going to talk about that. But this was, like, front and center of the education committee that met in, in, in Frankfurt, where the House was talking about... They, they used the word woke agenda for the... With Jason Glass, the current commissioner of education. Yeah, I saw Quite that. a bit, and he, he had a lot to say there about how the people really pushing this are the politicians, and I think Jason Glass is exactly right. Like, the Board of Education, the Department of Education in the state are, are really trying to find solutions that respect all people, people who I honestly don't necessarily think should be respected all the time, um, and, and the kids and the teachers and the parents and all this stuff, all this. They're working really hard to do that. And basically what she's trying to do is – and what the legislature is trying to do too, I think it's fair to say, and basically all of the Republicans running for governor, they're trying to take all of that agency away from students, from teachers, from administrators, and empower conservative parents. <laughs> That's about it. And and themselves, their, their own agenda, their own ideology. Um, and, and they're just – Making that very clear, I think they think it's a winning strategy, uh, and we'll see how it goes. I hope not, and I think not, honestly. I don't think that that's nearly as as powerful an issue in 2023 as it was back in 2021 um, or in 2022. I don't think it was as powerful in 2022 as it was in 2021. I think it's just getting less and less powerful as we, we go forward because people see what it is and what it's resulted. I mean, seriously, I don't know if you've seen the stuff in Florida, but there's like literally people who like the libraries are like gone from schools and mm-hmm. books that are like not allowed to be shown to children, which is just a horrifying thing to see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I've only seen, I think, one Republican opponent so far criticizing Kelly Craft for for these statements, um, and that was Alan Keck. And he stated, to suggest, as it appears Kelly Craft has, that dismantling the system is the answer to its problem is not leadership at all. In America, we don't run from our problems. We tackle them head on. Of course, Alan Keck, I would say, is certainly the most um, pro-public education um, candidate and the most moderate Republican candidate in the Republican primary. Yeah, I mean, he says a lot of stuff that I, I mean, we, we when we did our whole Alan Keck episode, there was a lot of stuff in there that I was like, and I, we're like oh, he seems pretty, pretty I'm, cool. Right? I'm okay with this. Yeah, and, and, and this is another, like, hey, good for him not running away from that, finding his identity and, and running with it. I mean, and if you're a Republican, you know, which there's a lot in Kentucky, like, vote for Alan Keck. You know, he seems like he's he's not so bad. Uh, vote for him in the primary. Uh, so, you know, help him get to 4% or whatever. Show, show them that there's room for that ideology. In, uh, in their party so yeah uh, i'm not surprised but i'm happy to see that he said that yeah so that that's kelly craft in the department of education um you know we'll we'll see if this if this story continues to be an issue it, it kind of seems like her empty chair ad has continued to follow her and and we'll see if this department of education thing um continues to do the same yeah, before we move on from this, I, I also think that just like Kelly Craft is totally toast. Like she's just done so poorly over the for the past couple of weeks. Like it yeah, just, 
It's shocking. And I didn't. I didn't even mention because this has happened in the last week too. The pictures with Jack Harlow. Oh my god. <laughs> that are clear. Were clearly just her cornering him, trying to like get a photo opportunity with him, and he does not look pleased or amused. It's amazing. And it. It's just. It really is like how much money is going into that campaign, and I don't know. It, it, <laughs> and this is the time when that kind of stuff really matters, right? I think like in the heat of a general election, when most everybody's made up their mind, where you're voting because of X or Y, like silly season stuff like this doesn't really matter. But as people are like forming their opinions and really don't know what to think, like these small social media things really start like really have an impact because you're you're forming in your mind, okay, well Kelly Craft was the the lady with the empty chair that she never had anybody in her family die from opioid uh, overdose in her immediate family. Uh, she's the guy that tweeted out that picture of Jack Carlo. She wants to dismantle the Department of Education and call everybody woke nonsense. Like this, this is these types of things are just kind of snowballing against her. I, I don't think she makes it to the primary. Like I, <laughs> that's my kind of hot take for right now. I, 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 I think I never. I was always less warm on Kelly Graff's chances than a lot of other people because of all the money she had. I didn't think that was going to matter, but I don't think I thought that it was going to go this badly. Uh, we're probably going to be telling people about the Kelly Craft campaign for governor for a long time. And like this, wasn't that a funny thing that happened? Um, so, you know, wish I could have gotten some of that money though. I feel like uh, being a Republican consultant for Kelly Craft is the best way to elect Democrats and make a lot of money. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's been wild uh, since really just the last six weeks. I think it really took off at Christmas, and it, it, it's only February. So it's been fun um, online, man. That Jack Harlow thing. I had a real, I had a really great time making jokes about that. Yeah, you <laughs> your tweet showed up in in a Leo article or yeah, somewhere. Oh man, it was. Yeah, I ended up having to delete one because I thought it was too mean. But, you know, it is what it is. All right, let's <laughs> let's move on before we get in trouble. All right, so the, the next one um, is a bit of an update on the state's juvenile detention crisis. So a group of legislators who are part of a juvenile justice working group held a press conference. And I think the biggest piece of news coming out of that presser was Representative Kevin Bratcher saying that Louisville is going to get a, a detention center, a good one. Um, so once again, I will continue to remind people that Louisville had one until the legislature increased Louisville's pension obligations, causing the closure of the juvenile detention center in Louisville. Um, Senator, Pro, Sen, Senator President Pro Tem David Givens um, talked about the toxic culture within DJJ that's due to the failure of leadership and Senator Danny Carroll um, said that someone from the outside needs to be brought in to change the culture there. I also saw today um, Amy Bensonhaver, who has been on the show before. She is an attorney who is an open records expert, and she wrote an opinion piece um, with the Kentucky Lantern talking about kind of how this juvenile justice working group has met in secret um, that I thought was really interesting. And so I'll probably link that 
with this story as well. Um, be- because of like how they're they're meeting, I don't think that we really know <laughs> what's been discussed. Um, but we have we do have Kevin Bratcher's juvenile justice bill HB three now. Yeah. Yeah, Jasmine, uh, you know, I don't know. I haven't read through that bill entirely, um, and and that's something that's on my list of things to do this week. But to me, like, this whole story is part and parcel of what we see with Republicans as they complain about administration. Like, this problem happened because of funding. Um, the legislature was involved. The Matt Bevan administration was involved uh, the, with the, the KRS board that he reformed was involved. Um, and, and all that flowed all the way down to the city of Louisville, no longer to being able to fund uh, its detention center there in Louisville, having to close it. The the That decision had, you know, all of this extra stuff that happened that was very bad that impacted the, the juvenile justice system that all stemmed from a lack of funding. And now the Republicans are trying to blame administration, the toxic culture within the DJJ, failure of leadership. The problem is funding. The problem is that we do not give enough money to, 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 to service the people that we're putting in prison, the children that we're putting in jail. Um, those are the people who we're not funding um, and, and we're having all of these problems. Um, and, and yeah, like uh, – we can do all we want. We're, we're pointing fingers at people, but what we're doing to try to solve the actual funding problem is cutting taxes. Um, so this problem, I, I have zero faith in the legislature to, to solve this problem because clearly they can't even see it. Um, so, you know, I think that this is really disappointing, really upsetting, um, and, and just proof that we're in really terrible hands and we have a really terrible situation on our hands. So, you know, I just don't see this getting better this year. I, I certainly hope that somebody can do something, but I don't know. Yeah, I I don't see this getting better. Be- I don't really trust the legislature to pass a, a bill that makes it better. And I, I'm not really certain I trust the executive branch either just because the changes that are being made now, I think, are punitive type changes and they don't do anything to actually focus on the mental health or well-being of the children in the facilities or address those issues and so equipping workers with tasers and pepper spray does nothing to address the the issues with the youth in the facilities either and so um i think there's there's issues with both the legislative and executive branch when it comes to this problem. Yeah, no doubt about it. No, another really good article about that in the Kentucky Lantern. Third Kentucky Lantern story mm-hmm. to mention uh, <laughs> this week. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. All right. Next, we wanted to uh, talk about the state of the city addresses in Lexington and Louisville. Um, so Mayor Craig Greenberg gave his first state of the city address last Thursday in Louisville. Public safety was a major theme, and he cited that homicides were down from 2021 to 2022, and he said he plans to improve police recruitment and training. He also plans to reopen the Parkland and Fern Creek libraries, um, which I think that's a good thing. I'm always pro-public library. And he also announced the creation of two new offices, the Office of Philanthropy and Office of Immigrant Affairs, 
as well as elevating two existing departments to the mayor's office, which include the Office of Equity and the Office of Sustainability. Yeah, I thought that was, I mean, all of that's good stuff. Your first state of the city should not be one where you're like having to deal with bad stuff. It's where you're kind of laying out what you're actually hoping to do. Um, You know, he mentioned universal pre-K, which is, of course, really important to me. That's within the Office of Philanthropy. Still waiting on more details to to come out. But, you know, at least it got mentioned. Um, You know, public safety, of course, that's such an important issue to him. That was a major thing that he talked about throughout the campaign and, you know, improving recruitment and training trying to marry those like we're going to make police better and do a better job of uh, having more or whatever like that that's what he said consistently since he's been in the public eye so mm-hmm. continuing with that that line of thinking so you know all in all um either stuff i expected or stuff that i was i was happy to see i also thought it was really cool jasmine he gave his state of the city at the americana community center down in beachmont and not yeah. like downtown and downtown and, yeah which I, I thought that was pretty neat so that was that was a good move by him so yeah definitely uh and then linda mayor gorton gave her state of the city address in Lexington on January 23rd. She also talked uh, greatly about public safety and she talked about these flock cameras and license plate readers that were installed in 2022, stating that they helped recover um, a lot of stolen plates and vehicles and that they will be installing more of those in 2023. She also cited that gun-related homicides among youth and young adults were down 50% from 2021 to 2022 she announced three public works projects related to sewers and paving and then also a 25 million dollar parks expansion project that includes cardinal run north and the purchase of property along the kentucky river that will provide public water access to paddlers in fayette county lexington will also invest 11 million dollars in federal funding and nearly 5 million in local funding into affordable housing yeah, kind of interesting how these things kind of mirror each other where, you know, they're they're leading off with this like public safety, you know, improved policing type situation. And, you know, property crime is something that I feel like a lot of people in my life have stories about, um, which is kind of new. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I feel like maybe it's my age. I'm getting older. I know people that have houses and get things stolen uh, or it might just be that, you know, it's increasing. I don't know. I don't know. But I do think that people like are interested in solving some property crime issues, carjackings, et cetera, that kind of thing. So that's that's why that that's probably out there. I understand why people are talking about that. Um, and yeah, and then following up on that public safety kind of talk by saying, uh, you know, here's all these public works things that we're hoping to do. Here's all these, imp- uh, you know, improvements uh, in the city that we're hoping to do. Linda Gordon is, of course, in a different situation than Mayor Greenberg because she's been in office for four years already and has to own everything that happened before. But kind of interesting to me how how similar these things were um, in, in what they talked about. Yeah, I, I read the Lexington one first and then read Louisville's and I was like, oh, these are very similar. <laughs> Um, And then our last story, we wanted to note that two new Metro Council members were appointed in Louisville. Um, So they will be filling vacancies left by Keisha Dorsey and David James, who joined the Greenberg administration. So the NAACP made a request that the Metro Council maintain its black membership, um, which was honored. So Kumar Rashad was appointed to the District 3 seat. He's the mathematics chair at... um, 
Breckenridge Metro High School, which is an alternative school within JCPS. And he serves with JCTA, KEA, and the National Council of Urban Education Associations. He's also an alcohol beverage control office administrator in Shively. Um, I think he'll have to leave that job to be on Metro Council. <laughs> yeah, um, it, yeah, he'll have to probably leave that job. And I think also um, he was highly considered one of the front runners to replace Brent McKim as the JCTA president, which is going to like I think Brent McKim is stepping down from that position in the near future. I don't exactly know the timeline for that, um, but that was a name. Kamar Rashad is a name I, I heard repeatedly as somebody who who might want to be taking that over. And this would uh, remove him from the running for that, too. Mm-hmm. So um, another very, very important person in Louisville politics, uh, another job that, that you know, got maybe a little bit more dramatic um, with Kumar Rashad going on to the Metro Council. But, you know, he seems well qualified. Um, District 3, of course, such an important part of town. Um, and, you know, Keisha Dorsey moving into the mayor's administration, yet uh, Kumar Rashad coming right behind her seems like a good um, good move. So, yeah, that, that's a good one. And the second new council person is Philip Baker who was appointed to the District 6 vacancy. He also works for JCPS as a family resource coordinator at Coleridge-Taylor Elementary. He also works for State Farm and as a legal assistant and holds a youth and outreach director position at a church. He's also a board member for the Kentucky Derby Festival and the chair of the Greater Louisville Association of Democrats. And he was the campaign chair for David James um, after dropping out of that race and supporting James back in 2010. Um, he's also run for state house before he ran in district 41 in 2016 and in district 43 in 2018. Yeah. Well, um, sounds like somebody who's really interested in public service. You know, I don't, don't know him at all, but, uh, seems like somebody who's already doing some interesting work with different things in the community. And yeah, like Metro council is a great way to extend that even further. I'll be really interested to know if Kumar Rashad or Philip Baker run for these spots when they become open again. I think, Mm -hmm. I think they're both up, but well, no, one's even and one's odd. So one's up in two years and one's up in four years. And I don't remember which is which I think six will be open in 2024. And then, um, Three will be open in 2026, if I'm not mistaken, which I very well could be. Um, but anyways, it'll be interesting to see if these people run in those positions uh, again um, when, when they come open or if they're just kind of serving as, as placeholders here. So anyways, um, glad to see that that process is over. It's always very dramatic. Who, who applies? Who's given their speech? Uh, I feel like every time there's vacancies in Metro Council, people discover the process, which is ridiculous. Everybody <laughs> except for the people in the community that is seeking a representative um, gets a gets a say, uh, and you know people are always outraged, continuously outraged at this process because it's crazy. And uh, you know it's good to have it behind us. There will likely be one coming up again because Cassie. Chambers Armstrong is running for Morgan McGarvey's Senate seat, so we'll probably have eight to do as well, but we'll leave that for then. So there you go. Um, All right. Any more quick hits, Jazz? Nope, that's it. All right. Well, I think that's it for what we wanted to talk about this week. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. 
You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast Network and the Ford Kentucky Network. All right, everybody. I know we've been slow on the newsletter, but with the session starting, we're going to start seeing it out again. So check your email. It's a it's a periodic newsletter now. It's all good. We're going to start giving it out again, though. It's going to happen. All right. Thank you for listening. and We will see you next week. 